Welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. We have a bit of a twist this week here in our season 18. My name is Stacy. Alicia, what is even happening this week? Hey, friends, it's Alicia, and we have been, Stacy and I, telling y'all trashy stories now for over four years with a whole set of trashy royals stories attached. At least where divorce is concerned over here on Trashy Divorces. But this year, just last month, Trashy Divorces, your creative team here at Hemlock Creatives, have launched a whole new thing, Trashy Royals. We have a whole new podcast. If you're looking for a little trashy love to add into your Thursday listening routine, we are here for you. That's exactly it. We got you. <laughs> this episode today that we're playing for you, Stacy, you have taken us into a heist of the grandest order right out of the almost French Revolution. Getting there. Yes, it was actually one of the factors leading to the French Revolution. But yes, it's a heist. It's got everything. It's a really fun story. The Affair of the Diamond Necklace. And if you like this one, please head on over to Trashy Royals to hear some more episodes and subscribe. We got stories for you straight out of ancient Rome all the way up to Plantagenet, England so far. And you folks with littler ears know that this is a lower sodium podcast. We're less salty. The language is clean. Yeah, good all-around storytelling, interesting history, and all the echoes and how trashy spiderwebs have been happening since the beginning of time. True story. We will be back this Saturday with a doozy of a trashy divorce. But until then, please enjoy this little ride into Trashy Royals. You can subscribe for all the fun. Stacy, we got to go, go, go. <laughs> we do. Royal style. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye. We're back at the court of the Trashy Royals. I'm Alicia. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. I'm here with you, Stacy, bringing us one of your favorite tales from history this week. It is indeed. Not many jewel heists result in the downfall of a government, but this one did. It's Ocean's Eleven in France. A little bit. A little bit. Let's get this trashy royal started. So, Stacey, you're taking us across the English Channel this week over to France. Right, shooting past Calais and heading straight to Paris. Cheese and wine. Alicia, last week you talked about the War of the Roses, which was an intra-family squabble between the Lancasters and the Yorks that finally ended when a wholesome little family called the Tudors conquered everybody and put itself upon the throne of England. Boom. In the 15th century... It would be unthinkable that a new monarch wouldn't take over from an old monarch. But by that point, we weren't actually too far off from a different approach to governing. Oh, really? In Tudor times, the prevailing idea was known as the divine right of kings, the idea that God had preordained the sitting monarch, thus establishing a kind of absolute legitimacy, even if the specific king in question was an absolute disaster. Tough toesies if you don't like it, peasants. It's kind of it. In just a few short centuries, however, Enlightenment notions about individual liberty would transform the relationship between those who governed and those who were governed. Whatever God's opinion of the guy with the jewel-encrusted accessories, 
people were increasingly seeking to establish governments whose legitimacy was, to one degree or another, derived from their consent. That is a radical notion. Boom. History unfolding. One of history's most polarizing and catalyzing events, spurred by this new conception of governance, occurred in France during the reign of King Louis XVI. I guess we could say toward the end of the reign. Yeah, just about right at the very end of that line. Yes, the French Revolution and the reign of terror that followed it will certainly be getting ample coverage on this podcast as we go forward. But today we're going to get into one of the most gobsmacking cons slash heists that I've ever heard of. And this was the source of a scandal that historians believe contributed significantly to the downfall of the House of Bourbon, the royal family of France for many generations, generations. a handful of years later. Friends, may I welcome you to the trashy court of King Louis XVI of France, circa the year 1784. Oh, it's all about to go down. (laughs) Where a woman named Jeanne de Lamotte, or Jeanne de Valois-Saint-Rémy, who styled herself the Comtesse de Lamotte-Valois, a lot of names here, followed her ambition an extraordinary appetite for more, into a scam so audacious that it changed the world. The scandal is known as the Affair of the Diamond Necklace, and it is delightfully trashy. Jeanne de Valois, her maiden name, her birth name, was born on July 22, 1756, in a village called Fontette, a few hundred kilometers southeast of Paris. Though her father technically descended from a royal bloodline, via an illegitimate son of King Henri II a couple centuries prior, the family was not well off. I think technically the family line were the barons of Saint-Rémy, but I gather this was not like a prestigious barony. Remember, the barons are at the very bottom. I mean, there's still a peerage. Sure. French peerage and British peerage do differ slightly, but they are all kind of based on the same thing. So... Barons, you're still in it, but you just in it a low rung. Right, yeah, but if you're like the baron of a backwater province, you're still in the backwater province. Like you're, you're still probably more fancy than any of the other people living in that backwater province. Right, I think they had a better rundown home than their neighbors. Let's put it that way. All right, so her mother... Huzzah for the 18th century. Jean's mother had been the maid at the family home. Jean's grandfather, clinging tightly to his claims of noble lineage, refused to allow his son to marry, like her father, to marry her mother, even after they started having babies. Oh, wow. They did eventually wed. Grandpappy forgave the son. All was well-ish. Grandchildren really do make a difference. Hmm. Her mother, perhaps serving as an inspiration to her daughter, was exceptionally ambitious and convinced her pops that the family should go to Paris, where she believed that they could somehow parlay this vague nobility into some kind of real status. Also, have you heard about the wine and cheese in Paris? They were not invited to wine and cheese in Paris. So when they arrived, this turned into sending their three kids, Jean, her sister, and her brother, out in rags to beg for money. Oh. Like they were desperately poor in a time when that meant you could starve to death in the city of Paris. Like, oh, yeah. Her father died young. He had a serious drinking problem, Ooh. which apparently contributed to that. And, and you say there's no wine. 
Fair. And there were plenty of beatings for Jeanne and her siblings until Mother eventually took up with an Italian soldier. Things getting better, right? No, no. no. She abandoned the children altogether. Um, They were taken in. Go ahead. Yeah. Mom just... This is terrible. Yeah. uh, Does mom run off with the Italian soldier? Yes. And just leaves the kids? That appears... As far as I know, that is the story. Yeah. That's terrible. Don't know if she was sending letters or money or anything like that. But the children, there are different tellings of this, but perhaps they were taken in by a noble woman that the local priest connected them with. Anyway, they, they did, the children fortunately kind of landed on their feet. Pretty sure that it is this adoptive parental figure, whether it's a noble woman, a priest, whoever it is, that gets court genealogists at Versailles to investigate and confirm their Valois ancestry. Oh, sure. This changed things a whole lot for these children. Jean's brother was given a slot at a military academy with an allowance of a thousand pounds a year. Clearly, British historians wrote this. While Jean and her sister were sent to a boarding school and given 900 pounds a year. Probably split between them, is my guess, because girls. Right. What are they even good for? Okay. The idea was that they would go to this boarding school and end up in a convent, become nuns, live out their chaste lives, not creating any more vaguely noble French people for well, the we have papers and... for you now. So if you could just go and live quietly in the nunnery, that would be great. Instead, the girls escaped the school, returned <laughs> to their ancestral haunts around Fontette, and in June of 1780, Jean got married. One month later, Jean gives birth to twins. Mazel. What? I know, it's just the fastest pregnancy in recorded history it's amazing how do you think the convent would explain pregnant nuns well unfortunately the twin babies did not survive which was another common situation at the time let's go ahead and dispel something here just in general it is childbirth that really lowers the birth age if you can get past childbirth the, in... the, the mortality rate right that's what you're thinking of yes yes Ray's like oh you only lived till you were 28 mm, you lived a lot longer if you that's the median mean mode kind of age it, it's getting born and making it out of childhood that's sure. going to give you a real good chance of success right and yeah women giving birth that was a high mortality situation too so you had a lot of women dying at the age of 17 or whatever yeah Mm -hmm. because they'd been married young anyway i digress her new hubby was nicholas de la motte and he also had some vague but plausible claim to some degree of nobility he was an officer in the gendarmes this was a mounted cavalry unit that noblemen served in i think they would just probably assign their like get their sons signed up and then Technically, you have military service, but I'm pretty sure they weren't doing a whole lot. That's my guess. Fancy uniforms, though. And horses. Who doesn't love a good horse and a fancy uniform? So it seems like even if Nicholas's claims weren't that strong, people in the community certainly believed that he was some kind of nobility. So he and Jean began referring to themselves as the Comte and Comtesse de la Motte Valois. I'm sorry, they just invent themselves a title? They make themselves a count and countess. Can we do this? What I don't title see, would you like to have? I don't see why not. A comtesse doesn't sound bad. No. I'd like to be a duchess. Like, if we're going to go in the thing, comtesse is countess. That sure. would be kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I understand, like, not being too audacious if you're just going to make up your own title. But yeah. 
you're going to make up your own title. Go high. I mean, aim high. I am Duchess Alicia from now on out. What would you like to be? Not sure, but... Think on that. Duchess Alicia, there was one slight problem with their happy newlywed status. Nicholas, in spite of these apparent claims to nobility, was also quite poor. So very soon, Jean was like, hey, you know what? You suck and this sucks and I'm going to go get us some more money. Okay. At this time, if you had a nice pair of clothes, you could come into Versailles to walk the gardens and see the palace and just hang out while the royals roiled all around you. So it sounds nice, but people were literally peeing on the walls in Versailles. They were. That's why there were all the tapestries. So you just, yeah, private. It's privacy. But you could just walk on in. Privacy, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, you could just walk in. So Jean just started dropping in at Versailles, trying to catch the attention of none other than Queen Marie Antoinette. Why not? I have a confession to make. This is a slight diversion, but until a couple of years ago, I thought the name Marie Antoinette was a first and last name combo, but nay, tis not so. It's a first name like Marianne. And while her actual birth name was the more Germanic Maria Antonia Josepha Johanna of Austria, to me, anytime I see or hear her name now, my brain immediately, immediately says Marie Antoinette Jones. That's not her last name. So yes, Marie Antoinette Jones. Marie Antoinette Jones, one of my favorite historical figures. (laughs) Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Versailles, of course, was full of courtiers who let Marie Antoinette Jones, the Queen of France, know that there was a super sketchy pseudo-noble woman hanging around who'd been super pregnant when she married a guy who was probably pretending to be a count and that Marie Antoinette should probably avoid talking to her, so no joy there for Jean. Meanwhile, Jean took a lover, Rateau de Viette, because why not? And in 17... 17- <laughs> Everybody's so Parisian. <laughs> And in 1783, she met an actual somebody. This is Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan. Oh, no. Both a cardinal and a prince. So let's talk about, let's meet Louis. Okay. Did he make up any of his titles? No, definitely noble. (laughs) Definitely born into nobility. A cardinal in the Catholic Church. He is the Bishop of Strasbourg. I cannot explain why he's spending all his life in Paris, except more fun. So he was a prince. The wine and cheese, babe. 
yeah, he was a prince of the Holy Roman Empire. And his whole thing, his lifelong mission, and I think like many of his peers in that social strata, was to parlay his noble birth and these inherited titles into a career in politics. Also, he had a taste for the high life, and so he definitely preferred this Paris party scene to the stuffy Strasbourg church scene. Makes sense. Cold, snowy Strasbourg, I'm guessing. Somewhat problematically for Louis, he had been dispatched to Austria in the early 1770s on a diplomatic mission, and his flagrant self-importance and taste for grandeur really hit the wrong note with Empress Maria Theresa Jones. Oh no, Marie Antoinette's mama. The mother of Marie Antoinette Jones. I like that in English, that would be Mary Terry, Maria Theresa. Anyway. Yeah, you don't mess with Maria Theresa. No. This situation was likely made even worse by the fact that Louis had advised the French royal family against allowing the marriage of the future Louis XVI to Marie Antoinette Jones back in 1770. So let's say that he was not a warmly embraced figure in the court of Versailles in the early 1780s. They also hated him in Vienna, though he... (laughs) (laughs) I'm hated internationally! Though he was desperate to become a power player among the royal court, as his station in life and his incredible personal pomposity dictated that he should be. So if Louis was looking for power, Jean was looking for cash. Uh Uh-oh. You got the brains, I got the looks. Let's make lots of money. She became his lover on top of... The other lover? The other lover. That's a lot of action, Jean. Rateau. On top of Rateau, she, yeah, becomes Louis' lover. And I believe this is because the custom at the time was that highborn men would financially support their mistresses. But Jean, of course, is whip smart, and the two of them really communicate well. And in short order, she is fully aware of this status-limiting pickle that he has gotten himself into. All this boundless ambition, but the queen hates him. So he's stuck, and he's bitter about it. I don't think the king was super happy with him either. Like, Well, to be fair, the king and the queen, Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, weren't happy with each other either. There's a lot of unhappiness in there's, this story. There's a little bit of triumph of bad people. Jeanne goes home and sits down with her hubby Nicholas and her lover Rateau. <laughs> wow. <laughs> One big happy family and says, boys, I think I have an idea. Uh-oh. Enter... Madame du Barry. Oh. Right. Madame du Barry had been the mistress of Louis XVI's father, Louis XV, and had been a real thorn in the side of Marie Antoinette Jones when she first got to Paris as the new wife of the Dauphin. Yes, the Dauphin and Dauphine. Prince and princess. Are, are the French equivalent for, yes, prince right. and princess. Not dolphin. No, not dolphin. Not the mammal that swims. Dauphin. D-A-U-P-H-I-N. In 1772, Louis XV, who I think genuinely loved Madame du Barry, commissioned an elaborate diamond necklace for her at a price of a cool 2 million livre local currency, about 15 million U.S. dollars in today's money. Holy cats! That's a lot of dough! From a pair of Parisian jewelers. Not only a lot of dough, but a lot of diamonds. So this was not a quick piece to throw together. It took them years to track down enough appropriate diamonds for this incredible art piece described as, quote, a row of 17 glorious diamonds as large almost as filberts 
a three-wreathed festoon and pendants enough, simple pear-shaped, multiple star-shaped, or clustering amorphous, encircle it around a very queen of diamonds. Wow. This is not... This is a showpiece. Unfortunately, there was a little smallpox outbreak in 1774 that ended Louis XV's reign, and he died before he could pay for this necklace. Uh-oh. Mm. The jewelers were like, ah, mon ami! We have thought that we've searched the world for these stones there, for our payday. Right. There is literally only one person in France who can drop two million livres on this necklace, and that is the new king, Louis the Sixteenth. So in 1778, they pitched Madame du Barry's way over-the-top necklace to Louis the Sixteenth as a gift for Marie Antoinette Jones, who it turns out did not want Madame du Barry's leftovers. Big surprise there. Right. These poor jewelers, they spent several years trying to locate alternate buyers, like outside of France, other royal houses, whatever. Nobody, nobody no was in the mood for this kind of bling. I mean, the there was an economic crisis in France that I assume was not contained to France. So this was just a bad time to be like, I have the most expensive piece of jewelry ever created here. Well, let's go ahead and set that in a worldwide context. You have England and the not yet United States of America, right? Mm-hmm. Fighting an international war. You have which, France. Which spinning, France had been backing. So there's which, some of that. Exactly. France has been spinning. Like it's just people would probably love that necklace. Nobody's got that kind of dough. Mm-hmm. It's all going to petty, petty wars and power. So having had no luck outside of France, three years later in 1781, they come back to Marie Antoinette Jones, fresh from giving birth to a son. And they're like, oh, our queen on this joyous occasion, you should celebrate yourself. And do we have the bling for you? And she's like, guys, I do not want this necklace. We would call that a push prize now. When you deliver a child, you're spouse, significant other, the other half of that gives you a push prize, some kind of piece of jewelry. It's just a dolphin, guys, and I don't want your dumb necklace. After you've pushed out the baby, you get a push prize? Yeah, you get a push prize. Okay. She apparently doesn't want, again, Madame Dubarry's cast-offs as a push prize. Cut to Jean's house, where she once again is sitting around the table with Nicholas and Rateau, while her other lover... Cardinal Louis is at his home stewing, and she's like, look, all these royals who won't give us our due, all these hereditary rich boys, I know how to screw all of them over and make out like a bandit. Yes. What are we doing, Jean? Reto, Rhett, her lover, it turns out, was not just any old gigolo. He was also a master forger. Oh, very helpful. So he sits down and pens a series of letters in, you know, Marie Antoinette's forged handwriting, addressed to Jean, the Comtesse, telling Jean that she really wanted the big honkin' necklace, but the king was really concerned about the optics here. How's it going to look when the country's finances are just stretched to the limit and people are starving and it is very bad? Like, one-third of the population of Paris did not have work at this time. Alternatively, Marie Antoinette Jones builds a miniature farm, La Petite Trianon, at Versailles, just so she can play peasant girl while France is starving in the cities. I'm not saying that all decisions made were good ones. (laughs) Just saying decisions were made. I think that's an interesting 
counterpoint there. Mm-hmm. The optics wouldn't look good. So the letters bang on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but I mean, they're fake letters, though, of course. Oh, they're, yeah. They're forgeries. But it makes sense if you're writing a letter. I couldn't possibly. Oh, yeah. I'd love the necklace, but how would it look? In their fake correspondence, Jean revealed that she was close to Cardinal Louis, and maybe Cardinal Louis could help out by financing the purchase without the king knowing. By golly, in the next letter, the queen names Comtesse Jean de Lamotte as her agent. Oh, sure. And Jean heads back to Cardinal Louis like, hey, bud, have I got some great news for you. Uh-oh. This begins a correspondence between Cardinal Louis and, he believes, Marie Antoinette Jones. He gives his missives to Jean to deliver privately to her good friend, the queen. And she hand-delivers her good friend the Queen's replies to him. Soon, the Queen's letters take on a notably flirtatious air. Uh Uh-oh. And Louis, with all of the confidence of the mediocre nobleman that he is, is like, of course the Queen of France who hates me and whose mother hates me is totally into me. Of course, naturally. This makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. There is no other conceivable outcome to this correspondence. You know she likes me. She's got a big old crush on me. So Cardinal Louis is like, Jean, my dear, you simply must arrange a meeting with the queen for me, preferably at night. Oh, no. Ka-ching! The website queensransom.wordpress.com has a lot of info about the people in this story, and it describes the Palais Royal, the royal palace in Paris, as sort of a bit similar to a modern shopping mall in that it had various amenities built in. There, of course, was an ample supply of sex workers to accompany the powerful men who spent their days and perhaps their nights there. While Rhett is busy writing all these letters, Nicholas was dispatched to the palace to find just the right woman among this cadre of sex workers who more or less resided there for the next act of this con that they're pulling. He found a woman named Nicole de Olivia, a young woman who had been orphaned as a child and had turned to sex work. Notably, Nicole bore a striking resemblance to Marie Antoinette Jones. That's helpful. And it's dark. <laughs> Nicholas told her that he and his friends were putting on a play on the palace grounds that the queen herself would be watching. She would be paid 1,500 francs if she would meet with Louis in the garden one August night, give him a rose, and say, you know what this means. That's the bit? That's the act? That's it. Okay. 1,500 francs, whatever. Everything went perfectly. After letting the pair stroll through the gardens together for a minute, Jean rushes out to warn them that someone is coming. And the fake queen went in one direction, and Louis, now fully in love, went the other. Uh Uh-oh. And knowing that she, too, loves him. Sure. She finally has seen his heart. Oh, yeah. Lo, these many years later. (laughs) I think Jean had already been grifting Louis through the letters for money for, like, the Queen's charity work, but now the amounts increased. And why wouldn't they? Like, now you're the favorite of the Queen. You know what this rose means. You should give her more money. Sure. On January 21st, 1785, Jean went to Cardinal Louis and said, okay, here's what's up. The Queen really, really wants this necklace, but she knows how it would look to the public. So it needs to be purchased, and it needs to be purchased in secret. 
Can you do this for her? Uh-oh. Of course he could. No problem. He went to the jewelers, who, by the way, Jean had already approached in order to secure a commission on the sale. She is, <laughs> I don't know how many dippins she Playing is. Playing it in from this. all angles. A lot of dippins in this. Double dippin', triple dippin'. So Louis says, hey guys, look, I have all these letters here from the queen authorizing me to purchase Madame du Barry's necklace, but this has to be kept hush-hush because everybody's really poor and while soap does exist, no one can afford to buy it. So <laughs> everybody's really poor and stinky and the misery index is quite high. So maybe we do this on the DL. How's that go? The jewelers have two million reasons not to investigate any of this too closely. Sure thing. So they ignore the fact that the queen has signed all of the letters Marie Antoinette de France when the style among the French royals was you just sign your baptismal name. Louis arranges a series of payment installments. He makes the first one, which must have been a substantial sum of money. And he leaves the impression that the queen will be making the subsequent payments. Uh Uh-oh. He walks out with the necklace. (sighs) These jewelers are only too happy to be rid of with the idea that they will be paid for it. And they got 10% of the cost, thinking the rest is coming. He takes it over to Jean's house, where a man walks in. He is introduced as a a valet to the queen. Valet, not sure how it would Depending on where you are, it's going to change pronunciation. But uh, in fact, obviously, this person was part of their gang. Uh, He walks (laughs) in to retrieve it, to take it to Her Majesty Marie Uh Antoinette Jones. Jean's gang promptly dismantled the necklace and got to work selling all of the diamonds. Nicholas went to London, offloaded some there. A few months passed, and strangely enough, from the jeweler's perspective, the queen did not show up to make that second payment. The jewelers reach out, and Marie Antoinette Jones is like, dude, how many times do I have to tell you I do not want Want the necklace? necklace? And they're like, "Uh, hold up. You have the damn necklace. Cardinal Louis bought it on your authority. He showed us all the letters. You don't have the necklace? It's a heist. Calamity ensues. There were trials that August. Cardinal Louis was acquitted, having been found to be a dupe of ruthless thieves. I suspect his reputation never recovered with the patrons he had so desperately been trying to ingratiate Sure, he was a dupe in it. Okay. Nicholas was tried in absentia because he was in London. He was uh, sentenced, Selling diamonds. sentenced to be a galley slave. Ooh. Good luck catching him. Rhett the Forger was convicted and banished. Ooh. Jean herself was convicted and sentenced to whipping and uh, branding of the letter V on her shoulders. The French word for thief starts with the letter V. So. Oh, no. Uh, and life imprisonment at a prison for sex workers. Ah. Uh. Say what you will about Jean de Lamotte, but a victim of fate is something she simply refused to be. Within months, she had disguised herself as a boy and escaped the prison, getting herself to London, where she wrote a tell-all memoir about the whole thing. (sighs) No! Including her very unflattering opinions about Marie Antoinette Jones. Holy cats. I think Jean's cause of death speaks to what the rest of her short life was like. On August 23rd, 1791, Jean de Lamotte fell from her hotel room window in London while hiding from debt collectors. Oh my god. I mean, I don't want to laugh, but That's I am, a, but I am in fact laughing. Right. 
of some trashy royals. While Marie Antoinette Jones had no part in the scandal, much of the French public became convinced that she had, in fact, schemed to acquire the extremely extra necklace. Yeah, fake news, man. Mm -hmm. will bring you down in France. Yeah, and the image of her as an out-of-touch rich girl whose vanity would always be her top priority, it's a view that was already part of the public perception of her, but it really took hold here in the mid-1780s. There was even a story circulated that the queen, who of course hated Cardinal Louis, had actually enlisted the de la Mottes in a scheme to entrap and disgrace him. And that, oh. And that he was the real victim here. Let's add four dipping sauces to our double, triple, quadruple dipping. Yeah, so this further soured the wow. public view mm-hmm. of their lovely Austrian queen. I don't know what passed as public opinion polls in France in 1785, but... No one in the palace was confused about the state of things. The French public, long skeptical of the Austrian princess they viewed as a profligate spender, dropped out of public view almost entirely in an effort to ease the pressures on her husband, Louis XVI. The only silver lining in all of this is that King Louis was apparently quite unhappy with the public's turn of mind against his wife. And historians note that in the run-up to what turned into quite a bitter end, he was a better husband to her than he ever had been before. Interesting. Like, he was very... Yeah, he wasn't a great husband for he, a very long time. I think it was eight years before they had their first child. They married very... I mean, they were teenagers, young teenagers when they married. They but. were. And Louis the Sixteenth was just not his... He was not Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun he, King. He, was, he liked to play with locks. Yeah, he was clearly overwhelmed mm-hmm. by events and not, not adept at governing. Anyway, you know, this... Improvement in her personal relationship was probably cold comfort, though, because after years of brutal treatment in the French press, Marie Antoinette Jones met her end on October 16, 1793, at the guillotine, about nine months after her husband had met the same fate. As trashy crowns go, I think there are a lot of characters here who deserve some. Jeanne herself, of course, as well as her audacious gang of forgers and thieves, But Cardinal Louis de Rohan certainly belongs in a category all his own. Jean and company were at least operating in a world where desperate poverty was always an option, but Louis' motives seem much stupider. He had miscalculated in his criticisms of Marie Antoinette years earlier, was found out, and then went on this years-long quest to earn like a pat on the head from the king and queen of France, and he was vain enough to believe that Marie Antoinette Jones might even be falling for him. Unreal. So we're going to award two million trashy crowns to this whole bunch (laughs) for the value of the necklace at the time. Diamond encrusted. Yes, uh, a full one million goes to Cardinal Louis, the vain fop of a moron who got completely used in this whole thing and was not bright enough to spot anything weird about the situation. We're going to give half a million to Jean. And the other half million will be shared among, you know, husband Nicholas, lover Rateau, the dude who came to retrieve the thing as the valets to the queen. All of those people who, you know, had to have played a role in this historically significant con that historians do say was one of the factors that ultimately led to the French Revolution itself. Wow. Well done. Thank you. That is the affair of the diamond necklace, one of my favorite historical true crime stories. Bringing it. Yeah. Hey, y'all. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of Trashy Royals. 
I'm going to be back with you next Thursday. A little bit different of a story. One of my favorites, too. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you being here. Be sure that you are subscribing to not miss an episode when we drop. Tell your friends who may also be into history. And so many thanks to each of you who have left a terrific review or five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We are really grateful for you and spending your time with us. We can't wait to see you next week. Keep that crown leveled up. Buff it up. Yeah. Make it it gleam. Mm. Big thanks, everybody. Have a tremendous weekend. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.